This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 3rd, 2016, and this is episode 1778 of the Survival Podcast. And this is another listener-chosen show, as I think all Tuesday shows going forward are going to be. My original plan was I would uh, have you guys vote on the Tuesday shows and do them in the order that, you know, the winner goes first and then the second and third and what have you. I've actually jumped to uh, the uh, the topic that came in fourth. There's a reason for that, and I'll tell you what it is. What came in first was 20 items to add to your preps if you don't already have them. And I want to really, really, really do a good job with that show for you guys. And 20 was a bit ambitious. It's going to take a while to have that list with uh, references and links and stuff put together. So I'm going to give myself a week to get that put together for you. Some of that stuff will be things on Amazon that you can get through my affiliate links. Some of it will be links to other places where I get nothing out of it. I want that to be a great show for you. So that's why we've pushed that off. So why not just go to the number two show? Well... I decided that this would be a good topic for some of you that have been asking to get back to kind of the roots of TSP at times, and uh, talking about bug out locations certainly does that for us. But I'm also excited because I'm going to take a totally different way of, of, of presenting this to you today. Um, almost everything I'll say today I've said in pieces and parts at one time or another throughout the history of the show, but I don't think I've ever quite cons consolidated it this way. And for a lot of you guys that want a bug out location, but you have that reluctant spouse... If you follow what I tell you today, you may end up having a really great bug-out location, though it may not be that remote off-grid cabin in the woods that you have fantasies about, or it may be. It all depends. But I'll give you the rational way today to look at setting up a bug-out location, or bull, uh, a fallback location is what they really are. And we'll talk about that in a way that will make sense financially, logistically, uh, in many different ways as an investment, as potential income, etc., And that makes it more than just some place to run away when the Russians invade or, or what have you. The, the, blue, the blue helmets come from the UN or whatever it is that people fantasize about. Today we're going to talk about bug out locations in reality versus prepper fiction. What you should look for in a property and how that might not be what you think it is. We're going to examine bug out locations for things beyond just bugging out like investment, income, recreation, tax advantages. We're going to look at the different ways that you can actually determine your budget and, and finance a property or pay for a property. Considering the needs of your family, we're going to look at structures, amenities, utilities, things that we look for normally with real estate that seem to get pushed to the back and should not when we're looking for that secondary property. Talk a little bit about how to find a property. The most important stuff to you today that I'm going to talk about toward the end of the show, though, are the buyer's mindset, the way you have to be when you're looking to buy a property. And I don't care if it's a bug-out location or it's your next house. There's a mindset of the buyer. Most people break these rules, and they end up spending the wrong amount of money, buying the wrong properties, etc. I'm going to talk about security, and not just for shit hitting the fan. You're going to have a remote property. You're not going to be there. you got to think about this. Sooner or later, people will find it and realize you're not there. Uh, and in the end, we're going to talk about how it's really all about your goals and what you want in your life, not what I want, and how... You shouldn't let anybody else's preconceived idea of what a bug-out location should be influence your decision on what works and doesn't work for you. In fact, whether or not you should even have such a thing, you have to make that determination for yourself based on where you are in your life, your comfort level, your budget, your opportunities, and a bunch of other things that we'll talk about. 
before we do, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1778. So we are in the midst of America's Revolution today. And, of course, that's a big part of the topics for the year 1778 and the year that was the episode by Alex Shrugged at tspwiki.com. I have a winter in Valley Forge. I have the Frank Franco-Franklin Alliance, and Joshua Tetley is born. I'm going to read A Winter at Valley Forge because it is a segment of our history I don't think we actually really explain to our youth in our so-called history education in school. The Continental Army settled down for a winter encampment in December 1777. His Excellency George, General George Washington, yes, they called him that, chooses Valley Forge for its ready food supply. It is easily, it's also easily defended. Unfortunately, the British are paying the farmers better for food than the Continental Army, which leaves Washington's troops cold and hungry. Desertions are up. Men without shoes are threatening to walk home. About 700 horses are missing and presumed eaten. Over 100 officers have resigned their commissions, so Washington arranges for his favorite inspirational play to be performed, Cato, a Tragedy. General Green is confiscating food from helpless farmers to feed the troops. George Washington feels ashamed, but he's getting no response from Congress for supplies. His troops are eating fire cake, wet wheat poured over hot rock. Women are suffering too since wives have accompanied their men to the winter encampment, including Martha Washington. Then a swarm of spawning fish, shad, move up the river. It helps. By spring, over 2,500 soldiers are dead out of the original 12,000. Congress is calling for Washington to resign, but he is telling them gen gen in a gentlemanly way to kiss off, so they do. He might have been using a different word in a gentlemanly way that also ended in ISS. Who knows? Anyway, my take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, there are a couple of questions. First, they had previous, they had previous winter corners. Why move to Valley Forge? Because the British had moved too close to the previous winter camp. Second, why didn't patriotic farmers sell food to the troops? Because the continental money wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. In the modern day, Venezuela's money is literally not worth the paper it's printed on. So they have stopped printing paper money. There was also a social safety problem. Armies move, farms stay put. So if you're a farmer supporting continental army, you might get hurt by your crown loyalist neighbors once the continental army moved out. It was safer to remain neutral. Finally, the backstabbing in Congress was intense and shocking, but no worse than what happens in modern day. John Adams was once congratulated by a younger man for his role in the American Revolution, but Adams would not accept hero worship. He replied, I have no reason to believe we were better than you are. FYI, Adams was saying his, saving his letters for posterity. That means he, he knew we would be looking over his shoulder, so he was speaking to our generation as well. I think many of our founders were speaking to our generation, but I don't know if we're listening. I have a couple things to say about this. One, the Shad Run up the river, the Delaware River, is still something that's celebrated to this day. Um, and there's a big, like a big festival where people go out and catch the Shad. Not the greatest fish to eat, but I guess if you're starving enough to eat your horse, you're probably pretty happy to have some Shad and Shad Row. That's the big thing they eat, actually, is the row from the Shad. Um, my, Real takeaway from this, though, is can you imagine actually being in this situation? You've, you've been revved up to fight for the freedom of your, your new burgeoning nation. The war's now officially been going on for two years, really three. And now you're just sitting waiting for war to start again because you just kind of take the winter off in these, these types of things at this time. And 
you look around and at the end of that winter, there were 12,000 of you and now 2,500 are dead without really a shot being fired. The disease has taken that many people. Well, I'd kind of like to look a little bit ahead here and let you know what the actual casualties were in the American Revolution by best estimates. Total casualties of U.S., our guys, 50,000. Uh, these are round numbers which tell you there's some estimating going on. Wounded, 25,000. So half of our casualties were people that were wounded and injured in some way, some in combat, some in non-combat, some just on a march, some you know because they got frostbite and their foot fell off but they didn't die, what have you. 25,000. So half were just wounded. That leaves total deaths at about 25,000. 8,000 from combat. 17,000 listed as other. We would do well to think of the sacrifice of the 17,000 equally to the sacrifice of the eight and to the sacrifice of the 25,000 who were wounded, regardless of whether it was by gunfire or by environment. Such was the nature of war in the 1700s. With that, I want to read to you uh, our Bombwell's Plan of the Week this week. This week we have Lappin's Cherry. The Lappin's Cherry is highly adaptable from zones 5 to 9. Cherry is one of the few truly self-fruitful options, making it ideal for small backyards and growers with limited space. Additionally, it only requires 400 to 500 chilling hours. It is also one of the few cherries that can be planted in full sun, even in zone 9, and handle the extreme summer heat in the south, yet cold hardy enough to handle the extreme cold of zone 5 in the north. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscaping, including fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. Find this plant more at BombWellsNursery.com. And with that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day before we get into the main topic of today's show. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you could imagine for your prepping needs. And with Safecastle, I do mean everything. Check out safecastle.com today to learn more. All right, guys, just a quick reminder, I am recording the body of today's podcast uh, for YouTube. It'll be in several parts because I can't record more than about 10 minutes on my iPhone uh, before we end up uh, not able to upload it to YouTube, even though YouTube will let me upload as long a video as I want. The iPhone says I'm not allowed to, so I'll, I'll be breaking this into segments on YouTube. So if you want to share uh, parts of today's show, you can reference people to the YouTube segments, and if you're listening on YouTube or watching on YouTube, I should say, where you can actually see me. Uh, if you'd like to get the entire podcast, there'll be a link in the video notes. And if you want to find out everything that we do at the Survival Podcast, just go to tspc.co. 
those of you guys uh, that listen every day, but you know, look us up on your phones and stuff. Remember, you don't have to type out the whole survivalpodcast.com thing. TSPC.co will get you there. Real quick update though from yesterday's show before I get into bug out locations, which is what we're going to talk about today, is uh, I talked yesterday about grills and uh, Weber grills and saying the Genesis was a hell of a grill, and it really is. Somebody commented though in the comments that you should check Craigslist because I mean we are talking about a grill. Uh, that can be upwards of $800 or more based on the options, like the E330 with the two side burners and all. Uh, I checked on Craigslist. There's almost a brand new E330 uh, Genesis uh, in Dallas right now for $440. Bucks. And I bet you, you know, the guy wants to sell it, so you could probably make a better offer. So uh, with your big ticket purchases, um, it kind of goes without saying, but always check Craigslist. Anyway, with that knocked out, uh, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show, or uh, the bug-out location, as I pull up my outline here. I, I want to kind of start out with what is a bug-out location and what is it not? You know, What is the reality versus prepper fiction versions of a bug-out location? A lot of people in the you know modern survival movement have a feeling that a bug-out location is that place that you go, you take your, your battle rifle, what have you, and you go out to fight the Russians. You know, you're going to go out there and, uh, adjust my chair here. You're going to go out there and, and battle the bad guys, uh, from your remote location in the Colorado Rockies, just like they did in Red Dawn. Not very likely, not very practical. And it, it the, the mentality there, the problem with it, if you want to end up in a situation with your bug-out location, where you could be in a literal, total, 100% shit hit the fan and be able to survive. You want that type of remote fortification, that's fine. But if you only build it for that purpose, you're going to break almost every other rule that I give you today, and I almost guarantee you you're going to end up unhappy. You're going to end up with a piece of property you've got too much money tied up into, you can't get rid of it, you don't use it. It's only there if the Blue Helmets march or, or whatever it is that you're preparing for. It's only there if the Koreans launch an EMP or whatever it is you're scared of. That's the only thing it's there for. And the, the reality is my number one rule of preparedness is to do things that pay off today even if nothing ever goes wrong. And we can build our bug-out locations with that in mind, and we can do very well for ourselves with that in mind. What we have to do is first build the bug-out location to our current needs in life and then have a plan for, well, if I have to retreat here, how would I be able to sustain myself in that situation? doesn't matter why. could be because, you know, the worst of the worst has happened. More likely it's because, I don't know, a natural disaster destroyed your main dwelling. You've lost a job and you've decided to, you know, fish or cut bait basically and uh, make a try doing something else at a lower cost. Your, your bug out location should be less expensive than your primary home is a general rule. That's not always true because some of you have paid for homes and that, that kind of changed that dynamic. But for most people, that would be a good rule to follow. So there could be all kinds of rules uh, or reasons that you would need to retreat to your bug out location. So let's start out with what a bug out location actually is. It would actually be a much better term, and it's a term we used in the military, a fallback location. So the primary plan failed, and we don't want to be stuck out in the middle with our ass in the air, so to speak. So we have a predetermined location that we fall back to to regroup and figure out what we can do next. 
That's the real purpose of an actual bug out location. A place to fall back because something's gone wrong where you can be in relative safety and comfort and figure out what to do next with your life. If, if you're going to your bug out location because you have to, not because you want to, to go fishing or hunting or take a vacation or just get away from it for a while, if you're going there because you have to, you're probably in a situation where something's gone wrong and you need a place to regroup. All right? Um, a bug out location is also a secondary investment. And it should be looked at as such. You're buying a piece of real property. Okay? When I say real property, I don't mean like it's, it actually is there. I mean, that's the legal term for it. You're buying a piece of real property. And you can say whatever you want about the economy in the United States, but more millionaires are made with real estate than any other way. And there's a reason. And that's because they ain't making any more dirt. And for people that say, well, you never really own your property because of property taxes. There's some validity to that statement, but there's also reality. If you're renting, you're paying my property taxes. If I have a property and I'm renting it to you, you're paying my property taxes. You're still paying property taxes. In, in the interactive edge with the state that we have right now, it's an inevitability. So what we need to be looking to do is how can we mitigate that situation for ourselves so that we do not end up damaged by the fact that we're always going to pay property taxes. So that could have to do with finding property that has low property taxes or finding property that has tax advantages that offset the property taxes. One example is when you pay property tax, assuming you have an income and you file an income tax return, you're one of the Americans that actually pay income tax, the property tax is deductible from your federal income tax. So taxes being inevitable, a federal income tax payment, all that does for me is take away money. Okay, that's it. I get nothing out of paying federal taxes. Property taxes enable me to keep my property and defer some of the cost of my federal income tax. There's other ways that that gets into that we'll talk about um, in a second. But the biggest thing we want out of a bug-out location as a fallback is a well-prepared place of safety. That's what we want. We want to be able to, at any time, pick up, go there, and be relatively comfortable relatively safe, relatively happy, and know what we're doing at that point. To me, a well-stocked bug-out location, minimum, I could go there, stay there for three months without leaving, and I'd be okay. Now, that doesn't mean that if we don't have a bug-out location and we decide we're going to get one, and eight months later we find our property, we've made an offer, it's been accepted, we've closed on it, and we've started to use it for certain things and spend time there, that we're at that point. It may take another year, two, or three to get there because we should be better prepared at home first. The most likely scenario in a disaster is you're going to stay right where you're at, right in your house, like I'm in mine right now, and bug in. So we got to get that stable. We get that to a point where we're at least 90 days or better at home. My goal for home is six months minimum, but whatever works for you. And then we, we, we kind of build up the bug out location. Okay? But we should have a plan financially that the day we close on the thing and start setting stuff up, that within a month or two where we, you know, we can go there and hang out, that we'd be good for at least two to three weeks. We, we have to do that because that's going to enable us to go use the property so we can develop it and enjoy it and make something out of it other than just a fallback location. So, What should you look for in a property? Likely not what you're thinking when you hear the term bug-out location. Um, 
first, you, you really should just forget about it being a bug out location. Just take the fact that that's one of our motivations. So that's a great thing to have a fallback location. So what we're going to do is we're going to put that idea on a shelf. We're going to leave it there. It's not gone. Not going away. It's not we're just forgetting about it at all. At all. It's fact, in fact, still it's a little bit in the back of our minds. But we're going to look at everything else first, and then we're going to retrofit back into that concept of a bug-out location. So what should we be looking for in a property beyond the bug-out location? We should be looking at that property first and foremost as an investment. What is the likely appreciative value of the property over time? We should be looking for a property. We think, if I buy this today and 10 years from now decide this was all a mistake, I want to do something else, and I sell it, I should have a, an accrued value on that property that I can, I can, I can, uh, I can sell it for. Right? I want to accrue equity in a property, and I'm looking for a property that will accrue equity. Now, there's a lot of different ways that can happen. Obviously, if we were buying a condo um, on a beach that was being developed, that would be a conventional real estate play to build equity. may not be the safest way, though, because look what some of those places sold for uh, in Florida after the, the real estate bubble busted. But the resilience of real estate is those places are doing really, really good right now. They really are. So there's... Always that slack possibility of a drop in equity value on a property, but if we buy it right, usually we create enough resiliency for ourselves so that we can then come back later and, and, and take it from there. So we, de we definitely want to make sure that we have investment upside potential in any property that we ever buy ever. And never believe the bullshit that all property goes up in value because it doesn't. Generally, over the long term, all property goes up in value. But if you need money now or you need to cut expenses now and you have a piece of property that's leveraged with debt and its value has gone down below the amount you've leveraged it against, then you're stuck with it. And imagine being stuck with two properties like that. So it's really important that not only do we see investment potential, but we protect our investment We start out with enough equity in the property with enough of a down payment, or we immediately make improvements that improve the equity value of the property so that we have an exit strategy. Think about it this way. Your bug-out location is an exit strategy. It's an exit strategy from your primary dwelling. Again, because a zombie apocalypse is going on, or maybe it's simply that economically we have changed our goals in life and we want to go to that little place that we have set aside. And we're going to liquidate the main property, harvest capital from it, and go live there. I did that at one time in my life. We decided to come back. Without an exit strategy, I would have been in real trouble when my wife said, this, this remote Arkansas property is not working for me anymore. I want to go be closer to family. Because I had an exit strategy, it was easy to say, okay, honey, it may take some time to find what we're looking for, but we can do that. So have that exit strategy with investment in mind. Another goal for a property should be income. Now, it doesn't mean every property should have income, but every property could have income. So, for instance, a good bug-out location might be a small cabin a couple hours away from you on a lake. Now, a lot of people would get really twitchy, you know, twitchy, twitchy, twitchy about this because they're going to say, well, I don't want anybody to know where my bug-out location is. Okay, let's again, let's, we got the bug-out location thing. It's not gone. It's on the shelf. Let's let it rest. Okay, like a nice bottle of red wine, it's resting before we pour it. It's okay. All right? 
Because I want to put it to you this way. Let's say you found that little cabin. And let's say it was set up so there was something like a good basement in where you could have all your preps and you could have a big old bolted door that any any kind of tenant would never be able to even get down there, okay? And you could make enough income off it by renting it in like the high tourist season to completely cover or mostly cover the expense of the property itself, all right? And this is going on. And then let's say the worst of the worst does happen. It's a total breakdown of society. Do you think the two yuppies you rented to the cabin to a month ago are going to think, you know what we should do, Margaret? We should get in the Chrysler and drive our ass back to that, that cabin that we rented out in the woods. But see, then people will know where it is. Let me give you a clue here. Because of Google Earth, everybody knows where everything is. So a little cabin in a small community where people look out for each other that's used as a rental property, so there's a constant checking up on it while you're not there, solves an income concern and a security concern. Well, what if I need it when someone's in it? Well, you, you control when you rent it. And you can always say no if you haven't already taken a booking. So that's one way a property could produce income for you. Another way a property could produce income for you is a you know, conventional remote property properly forested could produce income for you. And there's a lot of other ways. The key is don't write that out of the equation that there might be income potential from the property even if you're not living there full time. In fact, sometimes the security concern of something like renting the property out actually is a security advantage as we'll see as we go on with this. Next, Recreation. I think for most people, this is the primary focus when you're looking for a second property. It should be a place that you want to go, that you want to be, that you enjoy, that, that your family enjoys, that your kids enjoy, that brings you closer together. A place where you can go hunting and fishing and trail riding or walk the beach or walk a lake or whatever it is for you. Don't write off the concept of having something that looks more like a conventional home that, again, is surrounded with community but gives you the geographic distance so that if something's gone wrong where you are, there is another option. Remember, the bug-out location concept's on the shelf, but it's not gone. It's still there. And tax advantages. So just a few other tax advantages when we own a second property. Assuming we mortgage it, um, and most of us will, and it's the one place I'm really okay with debt is real property because it generally appreciates in value. And uh, that and business investment are two places where I think debt works because if the value of the asset increases at a higher rate than the rate of the debt, the debt is profitable. So debt is a, a leverage tool that we should be using the right way at the right time and we should be staying out of trouble with, but we shouldn't just turn away. It's like saying, well, you can get hurt with a knife, so I'm not going to use a knife. We don't do stupid things with a knife, like try to catch one when it's fallen. That's a stupid thing to do with a knife. And that's what credit card debt is. It's trying to catch a fallen knife and figure, well, since I grabbed the handle three times in a row, I'll just throw it up in the air again. We don't do that. But with real property, we can do that. We can use a mortgage. So I already said one of the tax advantages is now I'm paying property tax. It's not a dollar for dollar because it's a deduction off my income. But if I'm paying a couple thousand dollars in property tax on a remote property, I take that right over on my 1040 and I deducted from my federal in taxable income. The other thing I usually have on a property is that dreaded property tax, right? I also can deduct that from my tax account, my tax, uh, my taxes. Now, I'm a big believer in CPAs, good CPAs. Do not just say, well, Jack Spirico said I could take this deduction, so that means I can take this deduction. 
consider that you may not be able to take a deduction and run it by a good CPA. But those two are rock solid until you get a certain income levels where you would have a good CPA anyway if you're at the income levels where you no longer can can deduct mortgage interest and property taxes on a secondary property or even a third property, which may be an option for some of you, even some of you that aren't wealthy. Well, also remember that I said a property could be an income property. Yeah. Well, you can almost completely divest yourself of interest in the right, or income in the right situation, even though it's real income. You can create a phantom loss through something called depreciation. So you can actually depreciate a property over a number of years if you're using it for rental income, even if it's part-time rental income, because it's a business asset. So that's another way you could create a tax advantage. Or remember what I said about running a property for income with say, some sort of an agricultural concern? Well, if the property is exclusively used for that, then a significant portion of the expense of the property may be deductible, and it may be things you would have done anyway. Again, tax attorney and CPA in all of these situations, but those are things to consider as well when you're buying a property. Doesn't sound very survivally, does it? Well, I think putting money back in your pocket so that you can do more for your preparedness and individual liberty is modern survivalism, and since I coined that term, I think, I get to tell you what I think it is. Anyway, um... The next thing I think you really need to think about is what are going to be your options for purchase. And you really have three. I mean, there's a lot of different varieties of each one, but in the end you have three. And one is conventional financing of some sort. If you're a veteran, maybe VA. Um, generally, that requires you to be a primary residence. You're probably, there's ways around that. Um, or if you're a normal, you know, just everyday property, you know, you could have your, your general uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type loan. Uh, or conventional financing, just straight-up conventional financing. Uh, and you have to do some math when you think about this. So one of the things that costs you money when you own a property, if you're financing it, is something called PMI, or primary mortgage insurance. And generally, when you have a 20% equity stake in the property, you no longer have to pay PMI. Sometimes people think, then, what I'll do is I'll take enough big bundle of cash, I'll put this into the property, That'll show 20% equity based on the purchase price, and I'll get out of PMI. There was a time I thought about doing that, and I ended up going 10% down to buy a property instead of 20. The reason was, when I looked at adding 10 more percent to it and said, okay, if this is going to save me PMI, how long will it take before I get my money back in savings? And the answer was 13 and a half years. Well, I'm not doing that. I'd rather have the cash. Given all the other tax advantages associated with the property, it was very, very easy to service debt. I mean, we bought that property in Arkansas. Had I had to give up my primary home, we could have kept that property with a job at Walmart. And we were smart about the way we bought it, and that's why we were able to do it at the time that we did it. It was before we had become you know, really successful in the world, so to speak. Um, so there's always ways to look at these things, but always do the math. Um, then there's owner financing. I generally don't like owner financing. I'm not saying I would never do it. I'm not saying I would write off properties using owner financing, but I'd be very leery and careful when I see owner financing because this is why. Generally speaking, people start saying I'll do owner financing when stars align a certain way. The first is they own the property outright, so they don't have a bank on the other end to deal with. The second thing is they want to sell the property for more than they can get if somebody has to go get conventional financing. Sometimes there's a good reason for that. Sometimes it's not so good a reason. So one example would be if you have a property that should qualify for a mortgage, 
You know, it's got a house. It's a, it's a residential property. You should be able to go uh, and get a conventional mortgage or a government-backed mortgage for it. And you could, but the person wants more money than the property will appraise for. Then what they'll do is offer owner financing, knowing there's people out there that can't get a mortgage, that can't get a loan, and that those people will gravitate toward those properties and be willing to pay more and higher interest rates because they can be told yes. So you, you really have to be careful about situations like that. Um, so be careful with the owner finance options. We, we, we're going to look at owner financeable properties when they meet all our other criteria and we'll consider owner financing if it's advantageous to us with, with any real estate. This has nothing to do with the bug allocation. Any real estate transaction, we should look at it this way. But we should immediately be skeptical that the reason they're doing owner financing is they can't get conventional or regular financing for the property, so they're, they're targeting a specific segment of people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get a property at all. And if you're in that segment of society... It may be that you shouldn't be buying a property, secondary, primary, whatever, right now. You might be in a position where you should be waiting. And then there's sometimes there's just reasons that your credit looks bad or whatever, but you have plenty of money, you got plenty of income, and it's your only option. You're the person they're looking for. Know that you're going to be paying a premium on a property. Here's why I say that's the case. I, let's say I own a piece of property, and I want to sell it to you, and it's uh, $200,000 for this piece of property. Um. You can either go to the bank, get a mortgage, and I can get a check for $200,000, and I don't give a damn after that what you do. I don't care if a nuclear bomb goes off and blows you up. I don't care what happens. I got my $200,000. I can go do something else with it. But if I put you in a situation where you're paying me $3,000 a month, it's true I have cash flow. But I'm also at risk that at some point you're no longer going to be able to service that debt. I'm going to repossess the property. Depending on what state I am, that's easy or hard. But it's going to take 90, to six, 90 days to six months minimum, no matter where I am, for me to get that done. And if you're making attempts to pay, now I'm at a cash flow loss, but yet it gets harder to evict you off the property, to reclaim the property, resell the property, etc. So I would just want the money. And yes, if I have a lot of money and a lot of investments, having different cash flows like that is a good idea. Here's another reason, though, sometimes stuff gets put up for owner financing. They don't have clean title. They don't have a clean title. And that's why nobody can get financing on the property. Well, what I say about you should have an exit strategy, now you think about who are you going to sell the property to when you want to get out. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because they're going to have to get financing from somebody. You can't own or finance it if you still, uh, you bought that property for, property from me for $100,000. And you need to get the hell out. Okay? And you want to go sell it to somebody and you want to do owner financing for the same reason I did. Well, I'm not cool with that. You're the one who owes me money. You're going to have to come up with $100,000 to buy your freedom, pay down the last bit of your debt. Then you can do whatever the hell you want. So it makes exit strategies difficult as well. So the way I think owner financing works is when it's a straight land deal. A lot of times those are hard to finance. That's legitimate, right? So it's not some weird thing. You know you got a clean title. You make sure of that. You have the land appraised. It appraises at the right amount of money. And then owner financing just works. And it's something that's like a three- to six-year payoff term with no penalty for full early payoff. That's the terms you should negotiate in that situation. And the last is an all-cash purchase. I've saved up my pennies like a good boy. This piece of property costs $70,000, a little cabin on it. I want it. I walk in with a briefcase of hundreds, or I sign a check, or I send the guy $70,000 worth of Bitcoin. He has his money, I have my house, and everything's paid for. 
that's a good deal if it doesn't take your cash down to nothing. I, again, don't be afraid of debt on real property as long as you know you can service the debt. You have a strong investment strategy and a strong exit strategy for the property. That's just flat out the way it's got to be. And I know this may not be... Remember, we put the bug out location on the shelf. And you're like, man, this just sounds like good common sense real estate investing. It is. It is. You're buying real estate. You're not buying a bug out location. You're buying a piece of real estate, and one of the functions it serves is as a fallback location. So we need to be thinking about all these things going in. The next thing we need to be thinking about, and actually probably should be thinking about this first, is general comfort and buy-in for your family. So we get guys, and they say, well, me and Bill, we're going to get us a deer lease and call it a bug-out location, and we're going to have this beat-up old little trailer on it, and we both sleep in and drink beer and fart and snore in and yell at each other for it, and we don't really give a damn the way things are, and we'll pee on a tree and poop in a hole around, go shoot a couple deers every year. Well, then you have a deer lease. You know, you have a deer lease that you don't lease, you own it. But what you don't have is a bug-out location for your family, unless your family's okay with those living conditions, and most kids and women are not. You got to think about that. You really do. And what people think is, well, since I'm doing this, you know, if we ever have to run off because the shit has hit the fan, well, then they'll just go and like it. Okay, what about the rest of your freaking life? What about the rest of your life? What about tomorrow? What about next week? What about next month? Wouldn't it be better that your family was like, this is pretty nice. I like it here, Dad. I want to come here and go fishing with you, Dad. Honey, this is beautiful. I'd like to come here on our anniversary one year. Spend a week just you and us alone, put the kids with grandma or whatever. That's what you're looking for in something like this. Something that your family is excited about. They want to be part of. Now, if you're single and you live alone, then think about your own comfort and needs. But life gets old in a tent fast. Trust me, you're, you're, you're listening to someone that at one time in my life, I lived in a GP medium tent with seven other guys for 180 days straight, sleeping on a cot, living out of a footlocker. It gets old. At least we had a wooden floor. We lived in a in a little mountain town in Honduras, covered with dust and dirt all the time. And trust me, when I got back to Panama after that deployment and was sent back to my room, I shared with one guy with an air conditioner and a wall locker instead of a foot locker and a proper bed. I slept really good for about a week. I mean, I barely made it to work for a week after I got back because all I wanted to do was sleep in a comfortable bed. That doesn't make you weak. It makes you human. So think about that with your plans as well, with your bug allocation, comfort and buy-in from both yourself and your family so you can actually enjoy it. And then start thinking along those lines about your structures, your amenities, your utilities. Right? These are important too. Um, off-grid may or may not be the way to go. Now, the beauty of off-grid is if you're truly off-grid, then if things go really wrong, you don't care. You've got everything you need. But it's expensive to go off-grid. It really is. I know you saw some guy bury a container home for $9,000 or whatever. In the end, when you start looking at all of the costs associated with off-grid living, it's more expensive than bringing a utility line in and plugging it in. It's more resilient. It's, it's something I would love to do. And depending on your climate, it may or may not be practical. Uh, if you live in a state like Texas, where we routinely have temperatures over 110 degrees in the summer, unless you're able to somehow build an earth contact structure, uh, it's probably not very practical because there's a thousand degrees inside your house otherwise, and you probably want air conditioning. There's a reason every house down here has it. 
If you're living more in a mountainous state where you have your primary needs for uh, climate control is heat, that's pretty easy to generate with burning stuff like wood. A little bit easier to do. So you have to balance the whole off-grid, completely sustainable thing with reality. Balancing it back against comfort and buy-in from your family as well. So off-grid might be great. It, it really might. But you got to really look at the climate links there as a big piece of it. Off-grid and on-grid might be a better option. So it might make sense to put in solar, to put in wind, to put in rain catchment. But if you also have a, a well and you have range catchment, then you have two is one and one is none. That's what we've done right here in our primary residence. I have 7,000 gallons of rain catchment, and I'm adding more. It's pumped through a 12-volt pump that I can run off a car battery through a filtered system to make it potable if I want to drink it. I can use it for irrigation. I can use it for my animals, and I have a well. But if I lose power, I don't necessarily have to fire up a huge generator just to pump water out of my well. I can use that rain catchment system. And if we take it down to a point where we're out of water and rain's not coming anytime soon, if we have reserve fuel, and we always do, then we can fire up that well and we can refill it one time and go through another 7,000 gallons of water while we wait for more rain. That's two is one and one is none. They're not just, we don't we have two wells. We have two different methods of handling water. So a bug allocation, it might make sense if you can get utilities to have them and then have redundancies that are secondary and off-grid. That usually works a lot better. Um, always know that uh, raw land is going to be harder to purchase. A lot of people are out buying raw land today for bug out locations and taking the RV approach or the tiny house approach, and that's great. I love that approach. It, it makes it accessible to people that otherwise couldn't get a piece of land at all. But remember... It's much more difficult to get a loan on raw land from a bank, especially when you're looking for a low-interest, long-term loan to take advantage of taxes and easy servicing of the debt. So you're looking at much shorter financing terms, higher interest rates, or cash purchases, uh, or you're looking at owner financing options, which we've already covered as not being the greatest in the world. So think hard before we go raw land. No, If you're going to do that, have a plan and know why you're doing it and keep the exit strategy, investment strategy, income strategy in mind when you do. And then a real quick lesson from the world of permaculture. When we evaluate a property from a permaculture lens, and we look at it as a permaculture designer, sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, whatever you want to call it, we're going to look at water, access, structure. Even on raw land, where would water be? How can I retain it? How can I hold it? What are my access points in and out of the property? How does that make the property flow and work? And where are my structures or where would I place my structures? If we do that, we get a very clear look at a piece of property so we can be methodical about our decisions. So we're going to make sure we have that concept of water, access, and structure as part of our evaluation of any property. They're going to be our most important considerations with a property because they are the considerations that are most difficult to change. If I already have a structure on a property, it's a lot of times financially not valid to you know, tear it down and rebuild it. Uh, however, another way to look at it, even if I have raw land, when I look at building sites, if I have a completely flat piece of land, well, I can pre pretty much build anywhere I want. But if I have sloping land or what have you, then there are certain sites that are you know conducive to building, and changing those is very, very expensive. And trying to can often result in what you call a type 1 error. A type 1 error means from the day you finish, for the rest of your life, you wish you hadn't done it. And 
building sites and water storage sites are two places that can often happen. So we want to go in with that look right from the beginning. Where is my water going to be on this property or where is my water on this property? So another way, so it's one, I can put a dam in certain spots. I can't put a dam in every spot effectively. If there's a stream or a dam on a property, I can't just pick it up and move it. If I try that and I put a lot of investment in and do it wrong, I can commit a type 1 error. My access. When I look at a piece of property, I got to be able to get in and out of it. And there will be places where if I put a road in, I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing maintenance on the road. Where if I follow the contours of a, of a, of a, a property, I only have certain places where I have elevation changes. I can put in very robust infrastructure there. Or if it's already there, I can maintain it easily. And going across that property on contours will be a lot more uh, efficient and economical to maintain. So changing that, change the contour of 10 acres or the way the 10 acres of land lays. It's impossible. It's not impossible, but it's impossible at our budget levels, right? I mean, we're talking about bringing in major equipment and doing a major overhaul, dozers and excavators and things like that on a almost like a county government level to truly change the way that much land lies. Too expensive doesn't make sense. So all of those elements, water access and structure, are things that are difficult to change, and therefore they need to be evaluated critically before we make a decision on a piece of land. And again, I say that the person wants to set up a little farm. It doesn't matter if it's a bug out location, a little farm. This is just how we analyze real estate. Um, if we're buying a piece of property with a pre-built home and uh, existing roads and maintained and what have you, then that's been worked out for us, but it's also permanent, and we have to be sure that it's going to work for us and what we want out of the property. Uh, so sometimes it's a really good thing. Sometimes it's not so good because uh, engineers and real estate developers do things for expediency's sake, not for the long-term needs of the resident. That's just reality. It's a financial decision that those guys make. So um, let's move on to actually finding a property. If you're looking for remote property, you're going to find yourself spending time online. It's, it's really the only practical way to do it if you have a full-time job or even a part-time job and a life. Because uh, if you're looking at a prop, to me, a bug-out location, minimum distance would be an hour and a half. I'm looking more like two hours, and my sweet spot's two to four hours of, of distance from where you're at. That doesn't mean that works for everybody. I did a whole uh, podcast segment and video not long ago. I'll link to it in the notes uh, today for you, that segment, so you can hear about my distance equations and how that works out and how everybody has a different number based on where you live, what's available, what's your budget. But that's a, if you can do it, it's a sweet spot. Two hours is far enough that whatever's really affecting you where you're at, you can, you're probably not going to have it affect you as much where you've gone. You know, so if you have something critical enough to make you leave, then there's probably a, two hours away, it's probably better. Okay? If it's not, maybe it's just not your day. I don't know. Um, four hours, you can still go there and come back in a single day, sort of. Three is like my, what I'm, I'm setting as a limit for myself right now, and I always give advice based on what I would do myself, is about three hours. If I have a property three hours away and I can fish on it, I can leave at 6 o'clock in the morning. I can be there by 9. I can spend a whole day fishing, have lunch out there, maybe do a little bit of work on the property if some things need to be done. Uh, I can leave about 4 o'clock in the afternoon be home at 7 o'clock for supper with my wife if I go alone. Four hours, I'm probably spending the night. Not that I wouldn't want to spend the night, but I might not want to all the time. I might have a flexibility to do that all the time. So having that distance equation, that 2 to 4 hour distance is your goal, is a good place to start. Well, then you probably aren't going to have a lot of time to be driving around there. So Realtor.com uh, is a decent site. 
more for the prepper types, a lot of us are going to be looking at sites like Lands of, fill in the blank. So wherever state you're looking in, if you go to Lands of Texas or LandsofMontana.com, you'll find a great site to look up for property, both raw land and uh, houses on it. Another site to look is United Country. Uh, these guys, these, those sites are not generally the best sites to find the best deals, but they give you an idea of what you're looking for in an area, so you can start narrowing down areas. Um, another one is Landwatch is another site that you can go look at. Those are all great sites to look for. I'll put links to all of them in uh, the video notes and show notes today. But, I mean, at some point you got to realize, since you're doing this remotely, you need someone on the ground. Now, the best case scenario would be you're moving somewhere where you have existing friends or family. Or that you're, you're, you're setting up a bug, bug out location where someone lives that you know that can kind of talk to locals and look around for you and, and keep an ear to the ground. That would be great. But most of us, that's not going to be the case. So we have to do the thing that I absolutely hate the most, find a real estate agent. And finding a good one is hard. In fact, I put it this way, finding a good real estate agent, good luck. I recommend that you learn the ins and outs of basic real estate negotiation so that when you get into a negotiation, you can tell your agent what to do because most of them don't have a clue what to do. Um, I've had a bunch of agents. I've had agents say really, really stupid things. The property that I live at right now, the house I'm sitting in, uh, the buyer or the seller wanted $250,000. for. We offered two hundred and thirty. The appraiser came in at two hundred. Woohoo for me. I mean, most people would freak out. I was like, that's the greatest thing I ever heard in my life. And my real estate agent was freaking out. And I'm like, don't you understand they're screwed? We know what they owe on the property. They owed like 160, so they can take cash out at 200,000. So I'm going to make them an offer. I'm going to offer to come up with it. Because what she wanted me to do is she, can you come up with $30,000 extra and solve the problem? No, you dumbass. And you're lucky I'm keeping you. That's not what I felt like saying. What I said was, no, we won't be doing that. She said, well, what are we going to do? I don't know. I thought you were a real estate agent. Fortunately, I've been through this before. And this is what we did. We went back to him and said, we will give you two hundred five for the property. The buyer will come up with an additional $5,000 on the property. And you can take it or you can piss off. My real estate agent really didn't want to do that. So I wrote the letter. I said, you give them this. You don't talk anymore. Now you're representing me. Here's an email. You forward it to the seller's agent. And the reality was they were screwed. Once they had a property appraised for that rate, and they had already had it sitting on the market for so long, it was overpriced, and that's why it sat for so long. There's no way that property's going to appraise for $230, $220 ever in the next six months, unless something dramatic happens in the market. Any appraiser, they first have to do unlist the property, relist the property, get another offer, and then have that appraiser come out and appraise the value of the property higher. Because most people are not going to just shit money to buy a property. They're just not going to do it. And the lender's not going to lend beyond the appraised value of the property. Everything's based on the appraised value of the property and the sale of comparables. So like a week went by, and they didn't say anything. And my wife's biting her fingernails because she really wanted to get the deal done and get back to Texas. And my real estate agent's like, are you sure you can't come up with no more money? Quit talking like Mickey Mouse and don't worry about it. Uh, and it was over the, the, the New Year's holidays, and on the uh, second or third, whatever day it was that was actually the first day back to work, they called and said, yeah, they would take the offer. Everybody was surprised but me. Do you know why I wasn't surprised? They were screwed. Now, if I didn't know that, we did have capital, I might have come up with fifteen or $20,000 and met them in the middle, which was her next suggestion. But since I know the way real estate works, I was unwilling to do that. So when it comes to having a real estate agent, this is what they're good for. 
getting information about properties and setting up visitations, you got to do your own work. Now, I know there's some good real estate agents out there that are pissed off at me right now. You shouldn't be pissed off at me. You should be pissed off at the 90% of people that have your job that don't know what the hell they're doing. Another problem I've had with real estate agents, the same one, Mickey Mouse, I call her, uh, Mickey Cindy Mouse. Um, I said, when we move, we're going to run a business from home. We've got to have cable modem or DSL. She showed me houses that didn't have it. But they said they have satellite network. It doesn't work for my business. Pick the phone up, call the listing agent, ask them. Can't pull it off. So we got to a point where I started doing that for myself. I just find out who the listing agent was. Call them and say, I'm getting my, my agent to set up a, a listing, a, a viewing of this property. Before I even come out there, what do you guys have for you got to do stuff like that. Whatever it is you're looking for, you got to take the reins. Unless you're lucky, you can get a good agent. But you're going to have to deal with probably a buyer's agent anyway. Because you're not going to have the time to do the legwork. You're going to have to do the online legwork, let them do the on-site legwork, and really verify properties before you spend time when you're remote shopping. Get on Google Earth, look at the property. If there's something that's going to make it a deal killer for you, don't let your dreams take over and get you spending four, five, six, seven hours of your day to go look at two properties that you're going to say no to both of them. So if you pull up a property and then you realize, hey, this thing's like half a block from a major interstate and I don't want that, don't go look at it. Don't go look at it, because there's some other things we're going to talk about here uh, in just a second in uh, the next next segment that we're going to move on to. So we've accepted the fact that we're going to need a real estate agent, and we're probably not going to have one that's good. We may, and if you get a good real estate agent, keep their name for the rest of your life, refer them business, talk them up. If you ever need someone again, go back to them. Um, I have, in my adult life, uh, bought and sold, well, I've bought seven properties and I've sold six and in all of that time because they were in different locations I used multiple different agents I've had one that was really good as a seller and I've had one that was really good as a buyer and to be blunt everybody else sucked they absolutely sucked so just accept that you're probably going to get one that sucks. So be careful who you sign a contract with. I recommend you interview three or four and find someone that at least seems like they're going to be 60% acceptable. And then you do the other 40% of the work. And it sucks that they're going to make money off of it, but oh well. And also understand what you're buying is going to determine how hard someone's going to work for you. These people work on commission, do have some respect and understanding of that. And if you're looking to buy a raw piece of land for $40,000, there's not much money in it for a real estate agent. And that's where you're going to have to probably get out there and do almost all the legwork yourself, and you probably don't even want a, a, an agent. But if you're going to spend $100,000 and up on a property, which is easy to do, especially where you're going to get conventional financing, you are qualified, they know you're qualified, they know if they find the right property, you're going to buy it, then you should expect them to pull at least some of their weight. But be ready to pull some of the weight yourself because you're going to have to. Again, 90% of the time. Those of you that are good, don't get in my shit. I understand. And you know what I'm talking about if you're one of the good ones. Uh, so the next is... And I've alluded to this up till now. There's a unique challenge when you're in this situation. Generally speaking, when you're looking to buy a bug out location or a vacation property, you're not married to like a zip code. You're not married to like a city. You're like, I want to be in this area. And it could be a pretty big area. Example, when we bought this property, even though I want a bug out location, what my, my, my wife wanted was to be within an hour and a half where her dad was because he was beginning to have issues with Alzheimer's and she wanted to be able to take care of him, see her son and everything else. Okay, great, fine. So what we did is we made a mark where they lived and then said, what's 90 minutes out from here? 
And some of it was unusable because 90 minutes out was more city, uh, too much city for me. And some of it was really rural and impossible and didn't work for a variety of reasons. Again, because we had to run a business, Internet access was a big limitation for us. Found a lot of properties that were in our price range, really worked, but that was a deal killer. Um, but we eventually found something that did work within that range. You think that's an advantage. On some levels it is because you're very flexible. You're very flexible and you can say, I'm not married to this area, this zip code, this school district, etc. So if there's a better deal over here, well, hell, I'll go over there. I don't have, you know, a, a brother I'm trying to buy a house next door to or a school I'm trying to get my kids into. I just want this to work for me. But the problem is, okay, so when I bought one of my properties that we bought like right in the traditional suburbs, a place I had in Mansfield myself, um, you know, we had two or three zip codes. And we could go look at 10 houses in two and a half hours, three hours, and get a feel for what was there really, really quick and start narrowing things down and find a property we wanted to move on. It was easy. When we were looking at properties and we were spending all day to look at three, and two of them I should have never even saw because my agent wasn't doing her job, well, that wore us out. It took us eight months to find the property we're in now. And you should have that kind of time horizon with your bug out location. Don't get excited because that flexibility is good in the end, but it makes shopping more difficult. It's like running to 20 different stores that are 20 miles apart as opposed to going to one store next to another store next to another store and price shopping. Okay, That's, that's how you have to think about it. So it's a unique challenge. So now what I want to move into I think is the most important thing that I can give you. And I've given you tidbits of it up till now, but it's the buyer's mindset. Eventually, you will find a property that you want to make an offer on. And when you get into that mode, I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how much you care about other people. I don't care if you spend your time petting dolphins and giving flowers to orphans. You've got to go into complete business mode at the point that you get into negotiating on real estate. Because the party you're negotiating with, on the other side, trust me, unless it's your dad selling you his, his house, You're never going to hear from them. You're never going to see for them, from them. You're never going to have nothing to do with them ever again. And they don't give a shit about you, and you can't give a shit about them. I know that sounds horrible, but people make mistakes when they get emotional in real estate. There's places for emotion. This is not one of them. Let me say that again. This is not one of them. When you're dealing with real estate, you want to be Commander Spock, Not Dr. Frickin' Spock, okay? You're, you're working on complete methodical logic. All of the dreams, all of the happiness, all of that shit is still be there if you get through it logically. And if you can't get through it logically, you go from having something that could be a dream come true to a frickin' nightmare come true. And I prefer the first one, not the second one. So we're gonna stay logical, frickin' Commander Spock from Star Trek, not Dr. Spock making you feel good about yourself. You got it? Uh, next, there will always be another deal. I want you to say that to yourself every time you get attached to a property. I think it's the best deal I'll ever get. There will always be another deal. There will always be another freaking deal. Um, you'll have agents say things to you like, well, in this market, you want to might want to make a, an offer that's above full price so that we don't have to deal with a bidding war. Well, I'll make an offer above the the, the, the asking price If I think the property's worth more and I think I want the property and everything else works and I think there's actually a risk of losing the property and it takes every box perfectly. Otherwise, there will always be another deal. Okay, um, I generally don't make full price offers on property. 
I am looking for the property that has a bunch of shit wrong with it that's no big deal. But the person selling it is in a situation where they logistically can't fix it, they don't care enough to fix it, they're not smart enough to fix it, so the property, one way or another, doesn't show well. It has immense potential, it's right there under the potential, and all the things that it needs are actually relatively easy and inexpensive to fix, but the seller, for one reason or another, can't pull it off. That property is going to languish on a market, And when you come in and you offer a fair price for the property that's under the asking price, you almost inevitably get a counteroffer. And that counteroffer is almost always below the full price offer. Another property we purchased one time, we made an offer, and I think we were about 15% under the asking price. And they said, well, we have better offers. My response was, then I suggest you take them. Oh, my real estate agent didn't want to say that. Oh, Jack, you're such an asshole sometimes. Yes, because I don't give a shit about them. And there will always be another deal. Guess what? They were full of shit. There were no better offers because in the end they came back and they hit in between at about 7% uh, below the, the offering price. And at that point I knew they were full of shit. So I stood firm and I said, no, our offer stands. And we got the deal. Why? Commander Spock, not Dr. Spock. Got it? I mean, that's how you have to be. Does that mean you might not get into a situation where the person says, you know what, we do have better offers, you can piss off, and we're going to sell it to a better... Okay, fine. And what I say? There will always be another deal. The only time you get into those situations is when you really have the right property, and you're doing it all on that logic equation, not on your emotional attachment to it. Um, again... Do not care about the seller. I've had people tell me, well, they're just trying to get some extra money because they're moving to ten bucks to it. I don't give a shit. That's not my problem. That's not what I'm here for. This isn't charity. This is a business deal. And that's how you have to think about real estate. And you have to do this with vision. You need to look at a property and see what it can be, but use the Excel calculator in your brain and estimate high and assume it's going to cost more and take longer than it's going to take to make it what you think it can be. Because it is going to cost more, and it is going to take longer, especially when you're doing it remotely. Unless you're just full of cash and you're going to walk in and see a contractor come and go, yeah, I can do this for fifty grand, and you can just write them a check and have them do it. Well, if you can do that, fine. But I suggest you take about a month off of work and be there every day to make sure he does his freaking job. Because managing a project like that remotely is a nightmare in of itself. So... We have to have that vision for what we can do, but we have to be very realistic about actually getting the implementation done and understand I've got this whole life over here. This is what's the challenge with a remote property. And, oh, yeah, I just want to put a pond in over there. I can rent an excavator and do that myself. How long is it going to take? Three days. Okay, it's going to take six if you've done it before. And if you know what you're doing, it's going to take six instead of three. Where are you going to get an excavator at around here? you got six days to do it. So can that pond ever go in there? Sure, but... You know, I just want to put new flooring in the kitchen. I'll do it myself. How long is it going to take? Oh, a day. Okay, it's going to take three. How much is it going to cost? Uh, $800. Bucks. Okay, it's going to cost $1,500 bucks at least. And you're going to need the time to do it, and you're going to be taking that time from somewhere else. So you have to balance taking the time and doing it with paying someone to do it. And if you're paying someone to do it, then you're going to have to balance managing a remote project. And what I found with my remote property was I would pick something I knew I could do, that I could do well, 
and I would contract out something else that I thought somebody else could do a better job at and get done faster. And I would set up those projects to coincide, and my project would overlap the work project by two days on each side. So I'd take time off from work or whatever, and I'd go up for a project that's going to take the guy five days to do, and I'd give myself nine days. And I'd get there two days in advance, and I'd start working on my thing. He'd get there, and I'd shepherd him through that project, and then I'd have two extra days for when he inevitably said, well, it's going to take one extra day. Well, then you're going to come on the weekend and finish it because I'm leaving on Sunday, and you're not going to be here without me. That's how you have to handle those things. And you have to put that into that vision about what could this property become because those are the real-world issues you're going to end up with. All right, so we're going to be evaluating our property. We're going to be looking at what it could be with vision and a realistic expectation of the time and money necessary to get it done with an understanding that if we're doing it remotely, we're going to have to put multipliers on that of probably at least 20% in time and cost, at least. Okay, And the real realization that things we could do for ourselves, we may need to contract out just to get it done in a reasonable amount of time because it's not like something you can just come home from work and work on. When we moved into one property, it needed a lot of work, and we just stripped the floor in the kitchen and started laying new tile. And we just didn't have a kitchen for a week, but it got done a couple hours a day until it was done. You can't generally do that with a bug-out location. But we also need to remember what I said about You're looking for that property that could easily be better, but the guy can't do it, won't do it, it's too dumb to do it, doesn't have the money to do it, it's up against a bind, can't do it, so it doesn't display well, doesn't show well. It's difficult for him to get an offer for the price he's asking, so we can pay less for it. And what we want to do then is we want to ignore stupid shit that's easy to fix. Just like it's not even, just assume it was there, what would the property be worth then? Now we'll go back and figure out, well, Okay, the paint in this place sucks, but that I could do. I could come down here in a weekend and paint two rooms and the next weekend paint two rooms. So I could paint this shit, and it's uh, $500 worth of paint. You can estimate that real easy and say, okay, I'm just going to ignore that. That's $500. And drinking some beer and painting and listening to music in my new place. And I get to make it the color I want. In fact, let me put it this way. If you want a textbook way to think about real estate and not worry about stupid shit, Watch shows like House Hunters and Beachfront Bargain Hunt and all that stuff where these families go out, we're going to find a house, okay? Watch those people, and 90% of what they bitch about is exactly what you should be ignoring. And if you do that, you'll make smart decisions. People bitch about the stupid shit that doesn't matter, but that's why those properties don't sell for the asking price, and that's your opportunity to pick them up at a discount, especially if you can be a cold-hearted asshole for one transaction. You can go back to being the dolphin-hugging, orphan-flower-giving savior of humanity the day after you close. But you got to be a tough son of a bitch when you're dealing with real estate for that one day. Ignore repairs that are easy to do. Ignore clutter, right? Well, look at all this junk laying here. Hey, as long as the guy's willing to get it out of here as part of the contract, you don't give a shit. But there's clutter all real estate agents. There's clutter all over the countertops. Make no mistake, when you're showing your home, declutter your countertops. But when I'm a buyer, I don't give a shit. I don't care. Doesn't bother me at all. You know, I don't even, it doesn't even remotely enter my head. That it, I want to know what the countertop looks like. I'm not going to need to replace that and what's it going to cost me. Think that way. You make smart decisions. Um, and this is like the big one. It's probably the 1% where you can break this rule, but 99% follow it. Never waive inspection and appraisal. 
If you're in a situation with heavy cash where you're not financing it, what have you, a lot of times what people do in hot real estate markets or whatever is they'll come in. We sold my father-in-law's house this way. I'll do it as a seller. I'm not doing it as a buyer. Guy came in, looked at the house, said, we'll give you $105,000. We'll waive inspection. We'll waive appraisal. And we're paying all cash. You, sir, bought a house. We had multiple. That was a situation where it really was like that for a unique thing that had nothing to do with this, so I won't explain it. But there were multiple offers. Several were cash. And the guy that waived the inspection and the appraisal was the guy that we just said yes to. Now, he wanted a basic inspection, not a full inspection. Like, he wanted to be able to take a day himself and look for repairs that were necessary. That was his inspection. He was going to do it himself. So he came back with about $1,000 worth of shit that he said needed to be fixed. He was right. We took $1,000 off the property, and he had his house. I would never do that as a buyer because there could be structural issues with a property that you don't know about. And you're giving up a primary leverage tool. Once that inspection is done, you have an offer to go back in good faith and negotiate with your seller and say, hey, all this stuff needs to be done. By the way, if you do get another person... Um, interested in this property, this is still going to be here, and they're probably going to want an inspection too. So why don't we come to an agreement? So that's a big one. Now, the appraisal, when someone's afraid of appraisals, there's a reason. You know, it's expensive. It's about 500 bucks. It's not expensive when you're buying a $100,000 or more property. It's a tiny piece of the whole. Appraisals, really, the reason people don't want appraisals is because they know they've overpriced the property, and they know once it appraises, you got that appraiser's knife. That's what I call it, the appraiser's knife. When you are a buyer, the appraiser's knife is gold. It's gold. Because you've already made an offer. They've all, Before the appraisal happens, you've made an offer. You've tendered some capital, some cash, some earnest money, they call it, 1000 bucks, 500 bucks that goes in and just kind of sits in a little bucket that shows you're serious. The appraisal is is ordered. Your mortgage company is going to look at the appraisal and go, okay, it appraised at or above what we're being asked to finance. Rubber stamp it at that point if you're and you're good to go. Let's say you you come in and you offer two hundred thousand dollars on a property. The appraiser comes in and says it's worth two fifty. It's not like they can come back to you and say we want fifty thousand more dollars. Sorry, you underpriced your property. Doesn't matter. And at that point, deal's done. But if you offer 250 and the appraisal comes in at 200, it doesn't work the same way because you can legitimately walk away from the deal and get your earnest money back because you now cannot get financing on the property because they overpriced it. Now you can negotiate from a position of strength. Why would you ever give that up? Don't give up those two things unless you're in a situation where you've got to have the property, it ticks every box, and you really know what you're doing. So in other words, don't do it. Uh, again, 99% of the time. Um, and remember, this is a bug out location. You're not looking for a house to live in. So if you have to wait a little bit longer to find the right one, you wait a little bit longer to find the right one. It's not like you're selling your house. You got to get a new house. You move to a new city, whatever. You have time. Use time to your advantage. Commander Spock, not Dr. Spock. Logic, not freaking feelings. But I love it. You'll love something else someday too when it makes sense financially. Okay. I <laughs> can't say that enough. Next, let's talk about security. Security. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, we're going to get into it now. We're going to get some Constantina wire, and we'll get some booby traps, and we're going to get some surveillance equipment, and some night vision, and when them blue helmets come, I'm going to be ready. Okay, you need to go find Alex Jones or some shit like that. I'm actually talking about reality here. And what I'm going to say is, 
if you move to a place like that because the shit has hit the fan, your preparedness mindset and your equipment, et cetera, your prep should all be geared towards security as one of your five primary survival needs, and I actually call it six. Food, water, shelter, energy, security, health, and sanitation I put together as a sixth. Right? So security is big, and it's the most important one because it's the one you can live the least amount of time without when you need it. In other words, if you don't have water for a day, you're going to be okay as long as you get water at the end of the day. Uh, and you're going to need water every day, right? So it's a constant need. So you don't get to a false sense of security about water or food because you have that daily requirement. Security you can get lulled into a false sense of because what happens is you can go your whole life without any adequate security whatsoever, and you can be okay. I know it doesn't make sense, but you really can. People do it all the time. They're clueless, and they're lucky. But if you need security for one second when it counts, and you don't have it in that one second, you can be dead. So security is paramount, especially in a shit-hit-the-fan. But let's, again, that's up on the shelf with the bug-out location concept for a minute. This is a remote property. You're not going to be there. Forget the shit-hit-the-fan. What about today, tomorrow, and next week? Um, we had a remote property in Arkansas. I actually rented it to my niece for a while because they needed a place. And we took all of our all of our preps, and it was a mobile home, and so we put it underneath the house. So there was when they moved out, there was literally nothing there. It just so happened that in that little window before we kind of set it back up for ourselves, I mean, there was like a couch and some other crap, but it wasn't anything worth any money. No TVs, no electronics, and nothing obvious. It was just like an old piece of crap refrigerator. It was probably worth not enough money to make it worth pulling out of the place and what have you. So... Several houses in that community, apparently they had been, people had been watching, and when everybody was gone, they went in there and broke into them. They broke into our house and took nothing because we got lucky, and our stuff was hidden. And the neighbors went up on security, like the next day. Like the guy went out and got two German shepherds, another guy got involved, and that actually made the whole neighborhood really secure. So you may not want to be by yourself. That made our property secure, and we weren't there, and we felt comfortable kind of putting it back to a point where it was like a vacation home again, unless we needed it for a bug out location. But what if all of our preps had been in a closet? They would have been stolen. Then when we needed them in a shit at the fan, if that had ever happened, they wouldn't have been there. So it's not just the cost, it's when we need them, they're not there. So you have to think about security in the good times. Because in the bad time that you're there, you can see to your security. It's when you're gone that you're at most vulnerable risk for security violations. So... This is a real weakness for the very remote property. That little cabin out in the middle of the woods that's so awesome, there's nobody around for miles. Sooner or later, locals are going to find it and realize that it's empty, and scumbags are going to come steal. Gates are great, but this is my view about gates. Gates keep honest people out. Gates keep honest people out. They make dishonest people think, but they'll still cross the gate. But at least they know, okay, now I'm not where I'm supposed to be, I hope no one's here. Signs work better in conjunction with gates on dishonest people than gates alone. Signs that are typical, no trespassing signs and stuff like that that you get in a store, those can work. But let me tell you about a couple different signs that I've seen work really well. One was a hand-painted, poorly written, spray-painted sign on a piece of plywood that said, keep out or else, and I don't remember which word, but one of them was spelled wrong. It looked like a hick, hillbilly, redneck 
from Arkansas where you might hear banjo music, but dang, 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 put that sign up. I knew the guy that lived up there. He was not that guy. And every time I walked up that road to talk to him, that sign made me think, even though I knew better. What do you think it does to a stranger that sees a sign like that? Another one was a good friend of mine that had a hunting lodge that had that ran it from Friday to Sunday every week and was nobody was on the property from Monday through Thursday. And on his gate, he put up a sign that said, you're not lost, you're trespassing. That sign worked really well as well because it removed the excuse. I, I was just lost. So that's something to definitely think about. So I'll give you a couple other low-tech security um, techniques that don't work as good as I used to, but they're still valid. Um, the problem is today everybody and their brother has a four-wheeler, and you'd be amazed where you can get with four-wheelers. I mean, it's unbelievable where you can get with a four-wheeler. And when people are stealing, they like to have a vehicle because it makes them be able to move quicker and carry more because thieves want money. That's the, the main thing they want. There's the pervert that wants to rape somebody or something, but when they're talking about a remote property being broken, there's no one there. They either want to break in and steal shit, break in and destroy shit, or break in, steal, and destroy shit, or maybe break in and live there for a couple weeks. Um, and a lot of times that involves a vehicle. So I had a friend named Petey when I was a kid. He was an older man. He was a Korean War vet. A good friend of my family he used to take me hunting. And he had a hunting camp, and there was this road that went back to where his hunting camp was. And he, the road was all on his property. And about halfway between his road and his camp, there was a big, thick stand of trees that was almost impossible to get through with a vehicle. Again, I think maybe with a four-wheeler or a dirt bike, you could get through it. But they just weren't as common back then. Dirt bikes were, but not out in a couple of places like this. Now, like I said, everybody's got a four-wheeler. And there were two huge ruts in the road. I'm talking about straight down. And if you would have drove a truck in there, you would have not gotten it out without another truck to pull you out or a winch. You'd have been mired up and stuck. And when we got there, he'd go off in the woods a little bit. And he came back with two huge oak planks, about that wide, about that thick, like they used to build houses out of in the 1800s. And he'd gotten it from a dump, and that's what it was, from a torn-down house. And we'd drag those oak planks out, and he'd lay them, and it was a bridge, and we'd drive across those ruts. They weren't that wide, but they were wide enough to go down into and not get out of. And then when we would just leave them there while we were there, and when we left, we'd go hide them back in the woods again. That type of thinking is one way to make your, your, your property less accessible. And it's a little bit more deterrent than just a gate. Because I, as a kid, we did stupid shit. We used to run around in the coal mines, uh, coal lands up in Pennsylvania. And we'd find these gates and the gate had two bars going together like that with a padlock on it. And we had a Jeep with a concrete filled bumper. And we'd just pull up to it and just boom, boom, and the lock would pop off. And then we would open the gate drive through it, and then dummy lock it, right? Or put our own lock on it with our own key so that no one would notice we were up there. So, I mean, gates are easily, I'm sure the statute of limitations is up on those things because I was about 15, 16 years old when we used to do that. But uh, I'm just kind of pointing out that the, the gates don't give you the security that you might think they do. And these other types of ways of thinking. Be careful with booby traps and shit like that because you end up sued or in prison. But anything you can do to make the property more difficult to access and make people think about it before they do it. And this is why I actually love properties that are in small communities with neighbors around that you can get along with, that know you're a remote owner of the property, and keep an eye on it for you. Have their numbers. They have your numbers. Emails. Stay in touch with them. Send them stuff. You know, if you got a guy that likes to drink, get him a get him a beer of the month club. And every month when that beer shows up, oh, that's Jack from down there in Texas. He's a good guy. Yeah. 
You know, I'll take a look at his house today. It reinforces that. If they have kids and you have basic maintenance that needs to be done, like mowing your lawn or weed eating, pay their kids to do it. So you form an attachment to those people around you. That's the best security you'll ever get. Line of sight neighbors that give a shit and just see you as someone with a vacation home. And if you add to that seasonal rentals for an income source, you get a lot more security than just a remote cabin up in the woods. Though, if that's what you want, go do it. Just understand the risk associated with that. Um, kind of wrapping things up here in the end. This isn't what I want. It's what you want. What do you want for your life? In all the things we've talked about today, if things go wrong, where do you want to be able to go? A lot of people, the way to do this is from the mentality of, when I retire, I want to leave this rat race, move a few hours away and have this place up in the woods and go fishing and hunting every day for the rest of my life. Okay, then build it for that. For some people, it's, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm in my 40s and 50s or 30s, whatever it is, and I've got young kids, and I don't want them to think this is all there is. And I want to be able to, a couple weekends a month, just put everything down, pack everybody up and go somewhere and teach them about life. And I want this to be a lingering, long-term legacy investment that will be inherited by my children. And, my, and my, not only will I play with my grandchildren there, but my kids' grandchildren will go there with them then do that. Some of you just say, you know what, I just want a place, if shit goes wrong, to go to, but I want it to be nice and comfortable, and I, I, I understand now, I want an exit strategy in case it doesn't work out. Then do that. But do it for yourself. I have ten, 12 tenets of modern survival philosophy. The 12th one is the most important, and that is what you do matters. And I cannot and will not try to tell you how to live your life and what to do. Because the minute you get to the point in my plan where it doesn't work for you, you'll just go off and do something totally different. So we think here with Modern Survivalism more about how to think than what to think. You get the methodology I gave you down, and then you go figure out what works for you. Whether it's a bug-out location, your basic preparedness, starting a business, it doesn't matter. Use the methodology that I've given you. The way of thinking, not, not what to think, but how to think. Keep the goals in mind. And remember, we put the bug out location up on the shelf, but it is one of them. Make sure that it does work. If I did have to come here, would it work? Is it reasonable to get here in a crisis or a disaster? If it just was because I lost my job and I, would, I was like kind of falling back economically, is there opportunities for enough income to at least support this secondary lifestyle? If it's going to be a retirement property, well then how remote do you really want it to be? You know, as we get older, we need medical assistance and medical care. Do you want to be an hour away from the nearest hospital? You got to think about these things and how they fit into your life and what you really want. And if you want to live in the middle of the wilderness, two hours away from, from, from anybody else where you have to fly in with a remote bush plane, then God bless you and go do it. But make sure that's what you really want. And if you're married, it probably ain't going to work. I'm just saying. Um, and understand, real estate does build wealth. And building wealth is prepping. I think there's so many people out there, they're so addicted to beans, bullets, and band-aids. They don't understand that's just a, that's three arrows. Beans, bullets, and band-aids are three arrows in a quiver that's huge. That needs hundreds of arrows in it. And the way we acquire most of those arrows is through money. And the more we build our wealth the more resilient we are in a world where economics is one of our biggest concerns. 
And if we buy property with serviceable debt, pay it off as quickly as possible, or if you're worried about hyperinflation, well, great. If I had five properties that I had mortgaged and we got into a hyperinflationary state where money just started flowing like water, I'd get a bunch of that money and pay off my property. Don't get, don't plan on that. It's not going to happen. It's, it's not going to work that way. But I'm not going to not buy a property because we might have inflation. Because inflation actually increases the value of property. And in fact, property has routinely outpaced inflation. It's a wealth building strategy. It's a logical way to build wealth and create additional parts of your life that make sense for the way you want to live today. Please see it that way. Don't see it as a way to just escape. Let me tell you a story about someone as we finish up today. This, this, this man's name is Glenn. Some of you know him. He writes Prepper Fiction. He's the author of 299 Days. If you've read his book series, there's a story in there about his cabin and how he acquired it. And, you know, the, the, when the shit hits the fan, everybody goes to the cabin and sets things up. The cabin's real. The reluctant wife is real in that story. She really didn't want nothing to do with any of this stuff. They were well-to-do yuppies. But you know what? Well-to-do yuppies have lake cabins. So she was okay with the concept of it's just a vacation home. So making this work for your family is often being willing to take a different view of how we describe it. And if we do that and we keep in mind that we're also trying to build and preserve wealth with real estate at the same time, give our family a, a, a much better life here and now today and obey my first rule, everything we do should make your life better even if nothing goes wrong, then a bug out location, a remote property, a second home, a vacation home, it doesn't matter what you call it. It fits perfectly with that type of a lifestyle. All right, and that works out to about uh, a seven-part series that's going to be on YouTube, guys, that you can share with your friends in seven little 10-minute uh, to 11-minute nuggets there uh, if you want to share the show with people. I hope this is the type of show you guys have been wanting me to get back to. Real, common-sense, hardcore economic prepping is what this is about more than anything else. It's not just about having a bug-out location. It's about the economics that are involved. And when we start making decisions and ignoring economics, we make bad economic decisions. And that's one of the best ways we can derail and screw up our lives. So make sure you check for the uh, YouTube segments to come out probably uh, later today or maybe tomorrow. And with that, as we wrap up today, um, I want to remind you guys you can help support this show. Uh, one is by sharing it. Please share the show. I think I'm going to come up with a new listener uh, appreciation contest where we do something really cool. When I started this show years ago, I gave away an iPad, an iPad, an iPod, an iPod Nano to tell you how long ago it was, and it was black. And on the back of it, I had custom engraved being Ant, not a grasshopper. And the rules were you have to tell at least two people about my show. And we grew from a couple hundred people to a couple thousand people that first year. Uh, I'd like to take on something like that again, but give away much bigger awards for those of you that would continue to share my show. But go ahead and share it now, because we run those contests on an honor system. You say you did it. We believe you did it. Uh, and once that, that we start running, if you've already done it, you can say, you know, I did it. Uh, so please share my show, share my YouTube videos, and let people know about it. Um, because I think this is the best thing we can do to restore an actual... Uh, common sense culture in America is to pe be, be people to be responsible for themselves and their children. It, it just makes sense. And it's the world I grew up in not so long ago. And I do believe we can have that part of our country back. I don't believe politicians are going to bring it back for us. I don't believe corporate America is going to bring it back for us. But I do believe it's one of the places we actually control. 
and we can bring back for ourselves. So if you can help me help others do that, I'd really appreciate it. And another way you can help us financially is by becoming a member of our support brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more about that. And the discounts you get will pay for your membership. I believe in solid economics, and that's solid as it gets. If you're selling people something that pays for itself, they tend to be willing to buy it and keep buying it. So uh, check, take a look at all the discounts that we get for you and think about the things that you're buying to fix up your property, your remote property, or whatever it is, and how many of those things you can get discounts on and how that might pay for it. If you don't want to be a member or you already are and you still want to help us out, tspaz.com. Go to tspaz.com. You'll get to amazon.com. Buy the stuff you're going to buy on Amazon.com anyway. Don't do anything else. Don't spend any more money and type one less letter when you type in TSPAZ.com than you would if you typed in Amazon.com. It actually takes less work to support us, so please consider doing that. And with that, I want to talk to you a little bit about our song of the day as we finish things up today. Oh, wait. I almost forgot about uh, the TSP business directory and our featured member, of the directory today is actually Kids Double Desk. That's a family-owned business producing children's furniture since the 1950s. You can go to the TSP directory or kidsdoubledesk.com if your kids need some help playing it nice together. It's a really cool product. It's something I really want you guys to take a look at today. And remember, if you want to uh, be exposed to the entire uh, audience of 150,000 listeners of uh, the TSP community, uh, if you put your business listed at tspbiz.com for as little as five bucks, you can gain exposure to our entire community. Uh, and those of you that do do business on the directory, please leave reviews. That helps everybody get more value out of it. So our song for today is one I have played before. I think it's a, a song a lot of you guys really like. It's by Josh Thompson, and it's called Way Out Here. And I think it's appropriate when we're talking about bug-out locations to think about being way out here. And sometimes way out here is only a couple hours away. It's amazing how things change. Do you know I live in a place that if there was no traffic, and I got on the road and I timed the lights right, I could be from my front door to downtown Fort Worth in 20 minutes. It's kind of way out here. When people come out here, they're amazed that something this rural exists this close to maybe where they live. It's the urban-rural fringe, and it's my way out here. It's, it's my place that I can live my life my way. I don't necessarily have to be far away from everybody, and depending on where you live, the further you have to go before you get that. But sometimes it's not as far away as you think. So the concept today that we could have a bug-out location that has the freedom that we're looking for a couple hours away, some people struggle with, but you know what? One of the biggest things I didn't say to you guys today, it's free to shop. It's free to shop. But I think what's more important about Way Out Here, this song's really more about a state of mind than the actual geography of where you live. Now, I guess it'd be hard to feel this way if you lived in the true suburbs, but as long as you get out of that really, really dense population area, creating your little homestead, creating the life you want, creating the community you're looking for, having those good traditional values between yourself, your neighbors, and your family and your friends, that's a state of mind. That's a big part of the concept of living way out here. And for those of you that have the dream of having that second property or even just that first real homestead, I wish you the best. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Our house is our protection. 
protected by the good Lord and a gun. And you might meet them both if you show up here, not welcome, son. Our necks are burnt, our roads are dirt, and our trucks ain't clean. The dogs run loose, we smoke, we chew, and fry everything out here. Way out here We won't take a dime If we ain't earned it When it comes to weight Brother, we pull our own If it's our backwards way You live and you're concerned with You can leave us alone We're about John Wayne Johnny Cash John Deere, way out here. We gotta fight inside a mile wide, but we pray for peace. Because it's mostly us that end up serving overseas. If it was up to me, I'd love to see this country run Like it used to be, like it ought to be, just like it's done Out here Show up here, not welcome, son. <laughs>